Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Salt Lake 2002 Retrospective Podcast, a back-of-house look at the planning and delivery of the Salt Lake 2002 Olympic, Winter, and Paralympic Winter Games, as told by the very people who organized them. I'm Christian Napier. Today, we're joined by Rick Barrett, and I believe it was uh, one of your contemporaries, Todd Barnes, that put us in touch. And uh, Rick, I really appreciate you joining us today. It's great to get to know you. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you so much. I've uh, enjoyed listening. I've listened to about seven or eight of the podcasts so far, close friends of mine, and uh, it's really fantastic to relive the memories and to hear stories I never knew about, even you know, from 20, 18, 20 years ago, uh, things I just never knew. So, And part of that is because you know, when the games ended, most of us just went our separate ways pretty quickly, you know, within a month or two. And so I'm so thankful for you giving us the chance to kind of remember and honor everything that we went through. Well, I appreciate you coming on and sharing your stories as well. Just like you said, there are so many things that went on that I didn't know about. And I don't mean that in a disparaging or a controversial way. There are just a lot of different things that a lot of different people experienced. And it's been great to surface those experiences and those stories uh, from so many people and really it's helped give me a more holistic view of the Salt Lake 2002 games. And I appreciate you adding to that little tapestry of games uh, experience. Yeah, well, I, I hope I can add. I, I don't know if you're getting desperate by having me on, but I've enjoyed every one of the podcasts I've listened to. So thank you for keeping this going. Well, I'm definitely not getting desperate. And there, <laughs> have been no sh- there has been no shortage of people really interested in mm-hmm. participating and sharing their stories, which is a very pleasant surprise for me. Mm-hmm. So I haven't had to go and hound people and say, hey, uh, you know, you want to come do this podcast? <laughs> people are just being referred by their colleagues and friends and or they're listening to the podcast and saying, hey, I want to share my story. So I think it's wonderful. Great. Well, let's get into your story. And the first question I really want to ask you is, uh, well, where are you joining us from? So I uh, currently live in San Diego and I moved to San Diego, in fact, right after the Paralympics ended. So in the spring of 2002, I uh, moved to San Diego and I am an urban planner uh, and I've been in urban planning for 40 years now and working for a firm called MIG, which is a large multidiscipline planning design and communications firm based in Berkeley offices throughout California. And I've uh, been with them for slightly over um, 10 years and uh, doing a lot of work that I did similar or similar to what I did for the Salt Lake Olympics, in fact, in terms of uh, urban planning and planning for people and transportation. Well, how did you get into this urban planning space? Is that something that you knew you wanted to do since you were a child or is it something that you just kind of developed later in life? I mean, how did you decide you wanted to get into this particular profession? Oh, wow. That's a great question. Um, uh, well, um, I grew up in New Jersey and I grew up in a very rural coastal community in New Jersey. And then in high school, I went to a very urbanized area, just a few miles west of Manhattan. And I, in high school, I went on uh, many trips into New York City, learned about Central Park, learned about parks and plazas, went to the museums quite a bit. And, and I remember distinctly my junior year of high school, my mechanical drafting teacher, um, who knew I was looking for a profession to, you know, look into colleges for, gave me an article about landscape architecture and urban planning. And I read that article in front of him. And in fact, by the end of my reading the article, it was the light bulb went off and I knew exactly what I wanted to become. So right out of high school, I in fact moved from New Jersey to Logan, Utah to attend Utah State University, which was my first, actually my second introduction to um, Utah. I had been in Utah as a 12-year-old on a cross-country camping trip with my family and really, and that was then that I discovered the beauty and uh, scenery of Utah and made a mental note that to come back someday. So I uh, came back and went to college there. Why did you choose Utah State University? I mean, that's a long ways away from well, New Jersey. Understanding that you had actually come out here when you were younger and you had visited and you liked the place. What did it have to offer that dovetailed with your with your career desire to work in this urban planning space? Well, Ed, another great question. So, you know, it was it goes back to when I was 12 years old on that cross-country camping trip. And I remember with my my parents and brother driving cross-country, going through Pennsylvania, Ohio, getting into the Midwest. I'd never been west of Pennsylvania at that point. Got into the wide open west, at least in terms of Kansas, and then Colorado, seeing the Rocky Mountains. And I just knew 
that, you know, the wide open spaces was for me. And so that's the, the first bit about coming to Logan. Um, the second bit is I was an avid skier, uh, enjoyed fishing, a lot of outdoor activities uh, in the East. And so I knew that was um, a big part of the attraction to Utah and uh, Logan in particular. And by the way, and by the way, it was also very affordable. That was a time when um, Utah State's tuition in the mid seventies was lower for, for out of state kids than it was for my, uh, you know, comparable tuitions back east. So uh, as a result, we had uh, many different people from all over the country attending Utah State. And that, you know, then it's a little different now. I still keep in touch with the department and the professors, and so uh, it's no longer as eclectic as it was, but it was a very fun experience. Well, I have a, an uncle who lived in Logan for many, many mm -hmm. years, and we would go up there and go fishing on a regular basis. Uh, and I think the Cache Valley is just a beautiful, a beautiful location. And, and you're right. There's a, there's a lot of outdoor things that you can do around there. Mm -hmm. So, you finish college, you finish up at Utah State. Where do you go from there? <laughs> I, um, even though I knew I wanted to stay in the West, I uh, moved to Boston, Cambridge, in, in fact, and lived in Cambridge for four years, working for a large architectural firm called the Architects Collaborative, uh, which was my first exposure to uh, national and international design projects. Uh, the firm was at its peak back then, about 440 people. And uh, just fantastic camaraderie, worked on projects around the world and throughout the U.S., got to travel a fair bit. Uh, and then when that ended, I basically uh, worked my way out and relocated to San Francisco in 1987. And uh, that was when I first moved to California. So I've been in California uh, ever since then, other than my four-year stint in Salt Lake on the Olympic Committee. So let's talk about that uh, leading up to that stint. What were you doing there in the Bay Area and California, and how did that end up leading to working with the Salt Lake Organizing Committee? Sure, uh, good question again. So I was working for Bechtel uh, at the time. I joined Bechtel in 1989, I believe it was, in San Francisco, and got to work on some fantastic projects around the world. I lived in Doha, Qatar for four months. I worked on Euro Disney or Disneyland Paris, as it's now called, um, on the, specifically the MGM Studio Tours for about two years, which was a great experience and really uh, introduced me to uh, uh, tourism planning, planning for people. You know, in some ways it was, you could say it was an Olympic planning event every day, just with the crush of people that were, we needed to plan for. Um, I worked on projects in Bangkok, worked on projects in China, uh, just a fantastic experience. And so in 1997, uh, I was leading a project for the redesign of a a major uh, 45 acre site in the heart of Manila for the San Miguel Beer Company. And uh, 1997 was also when the Asian financial crisis hit. And so that project that I had been working on ended abruptly late 97. And it was at that time that I uh, connected with Grant Thomas, who at that point was in Salt Lake City on the ground. I knew Grant and had worked with Grant. Uh, at Bechtel on previous projects. So I just called him up and said, what's going on? Any opportunities for me to come back to Utah and come back to Salt Lake City? And he said, yes, absolutely. So in early, uh, in January, 1998, I began a series of, I, I think they were like two week business trips. I'd come to Salt Lake for two weeks, complete my assignment, go back to San Francisco. Grant or Jerry Anderson would call me a week or two later, say, hey, we need you, come on back. So I'd go back to Salt Lake for two weeks. And I was staying, I think, at the Broadway Towers there on Broadway, uh, just east of downtown. And uh, eventually, I think it was about in March or April, uh, Jerry and Grant said to me, well, why don't you consider moving here? And I said, yes, absolutely. So I was really, uh, I had caught the, um, the venue bug by then, as Jerry used to call it. And I uh, willfully and gladly moved to Salt Lake City, uh, bought a house in Sugar House on Westminster Avenue and 21st South and um, went from there. So I was probably full-time uh, on the ground in Salt Lake with the Olympic Committee in, I'd say, about April 1998. Yeah. So you come here, you're shuttling back and forth. Eventually, you move here, and you're working with Bechtel. 
with with uh, Grant Thomas, and then on the OCOG side of things, you've got Jerry over there doing his thing. So, what's your role coming in? You you, you come in here. What is uh, what is Grant having you doing? Uh, well, initially, uh, and for about the first year, um, and my title uh, was venue design team manager. So I was uh, overseeing the work of all the in-house designers like Karen, Lisa, Amber, and Todd, as well as the external uh, consultants, the architectural and engineering firms in Salt Lake City and in, in the area. So kind of overseeing their work, managing their work products, overseeing the deliverables. Um, and I was also at that point uh, involved in the planning of all the venues, all 10 competition venues and the 12 or 15 non-competition venues. And uh, I think when I joined, all the venue sites had been determined, except for possibly uh, cross countries, uh, the biathlon, which became Soldier Hollow. I think right when I joined, as I recall, it was still somewhat uh, being, uh, its final site was not fully determined. So for those first um, couple of years, it was really, uh, working with Grant and Jerry to manage the deliverables, uh, manage the cost estimates, make sure we you know stayed on budget. And um, when the scandal broke in November of 1998, in fact, I remember reading it. It was uh, the initial article I read was, uh, I distinctly remember reading it. I think it was like on page eight on the inside fold of the Salt Lake Tribune. And I made note of that and thought, oh, this does not bode well for us. And obviously it didn't. And then as Fraser and others have talked about, we lost sponsorships, budgets were cut. And so managing the cost estimates uh, for the venues became even more important. And that's, I think, the strength of what Grant and I and others from Bechtel and also the people on the Olympic Committee brought was uh, really a dedication to managing these projects uh, on time and on budget. And that's the other thing we used to talk about a fair bit was, you know, when you work on a architectural projects, you know, as we, as uh, we do, you know, other than the Olympics, dates move, schedules changes, change, milestones move all the time. Um, some, you know, most often for good reasons, but in this case, we all knew, you know, February, 2002 was the deadline. We would say the Olympics are not moving. We've got to hit these dates. So, um, yeah, it went really well, very smooth. And then as the games drew closer, uh, because of my urban planning background, uh, Grant had me oversee the and lead, in fact, the uh, what we would call the Olympic overlay for Park City and all of downtown Salt Lake City. So that was really exciting. And I know we'll talk about that in more detail. And then as the games got even closer, uh, about 18 months out, I was assigned to um, design and plan for the Olympic Medals Plaza. Well, it's uh, interesting you mentioned the Metals Plaza. Uh, so many people have talked about the Metals Plaza being a highlight uh, of their games experience, which sounds kind of interesting on the surface from an outsider's point of view. They'd be like, why is everybody talking about the Metals Plaza? But uh, that turned out to be an incredibly fun place to be during games time. Yeah, it was. Uh, I mean, I'm so glad and so thankful that I was assigned that venue to um you know, plan, design, and manage during game times. Um, Calgary, I think, was the first Winter Olympics that had, that created uh, what was, uh, became known as the Olympic Medals Plaza. So I remember we went up to Calgary to look at their sites. Uh, and as with any design and architectural project, you always try to improve upon what your predecessors have done. So we took, you know, a lot of the uh, opportunities and pluses and minuses from what Calgary did and made it even better. And um, there was a period of time when, you know, when we were, again, when I was first assigned the Olympic master plan for downtown Salt Lake City and Park City, at that point, we didn't have a location for Olympic Metals Plaza. And at one point, we looked at the top of Main Street in Park City. We looked at a site or a couple sites up at the University of Utah campus. And then in downtown, we were looking at Pioneer Park and then also the uh, city and county building. And then ended up on that uh, ten-acre site just west of the uh, or north of the Wyndham Hotel. So once we got to that point, that site selection, I think we were maybe about a year out from the Olympics, and then we went into detailed planning and design. And even during that process, and we can talk about this if if, if we want, but we went the site. The initial designs we did for the site did not have the stage 
uh, on the east side of the campus with the temple in the background. It was actually originally uh, in the southwest corner of the site with what was then the Delta Center in the background, which was the natural location for a stage given the topography of the site, you know, basically sloping from east to west. It made sense to have everybody, you know, looking downward towards the amphitheater stage area. But that was ruled out because the Delta Center sign was in the background and NBC and others would not allow the Delta Center name to be uh, displayed during the ceremony. So that's when we flipped it and moved it to the uh, eastern side of the site. That's super interesting. Uh, so many things are taken into consideration when you plan out these venues. It's uh, really, really remarkable. I know you've got a bunch of things on a list that you want to talk about, and I want to get to those. And I want to kind of go to one of them right now. Mm-hmm. Going back a few moments, you were talking about you know, remembering page eight of the Salt Lake Tribune. You started reading about this scandal, and that ended up leading to a change in leadership. Right. Uh, Frank Jocklick uh, resigned. Uh, Mitt comes on board. So what was that period of time like? You know, I've talked to a few people, a few of your colleagues and and, you know, there was a bit of uncertainty. Uh, you know, what's going to happen? It was a bit tense at times. And also people just could, you know, realize that there was work that had to be done. And so they kept their heads down and just kept uh, going mm-hmm. uh, for you. You know, what was that like having to go through that transition? from the Frank Jacquelet regime to the Mitt Romney regime? Very interesting, very uh, tense for me and for those from Bechtel uh, in particular. Um, in general, uh, it was an awkward time. Uh, you know, we were up to that point uh, proudly wearing our Salt Lake Olympic Committee uh, uh, uniforms, T-shirts, and then suddenly people started thinking, well, maybe that's not the right thing to be doing right now. That Suddenly this opposition to the games um, got stronger locally in particular. Um, and uh, and so when in December and January, that's kind of was very tense for us. And um, we were kind of untethered. We being the folks at Bechtel, um, we had been, I in fact had worked uh, not directly for Frank Jocklick before the Olympics, but on a project at Kennecott Copper. Um, um, and so I was familiar with Kennecott, familiar with Salt Lake City, obviously. And uh, Frank was a you know major supporter and proponent of Bechtel. So once Frank Jocklick resigned, we were, I would use the term, untethered. Um, and there was a period, in fact, uh, I remember distinctly, uh, we were in the 250 70 East 200 South building still back then before we moved to the Wells Fargo building. Um, the uh, USOC reopened, if you will, the opportunity to interview for the Olympic Committee project management contract, which Bechtel had already won with Frank Jocklick, you know, a year or so earlier. So I distinctly remember being part of the interview team with Grant and and a couple others, and we had to interview with the USOC, um, Jim Easton and Anita France in particular. I remember them being part of the interview panel and we had to re-interview for our jobs, basically. And there was so I, at one point I thought, well, if we don't win this, I'm moving back to San Francisco. I'm going to have to sell a house I just bought six months ago. And then Mitt came on. And I remember distinctly the, being with Mitt in a meeting. He said, we are not going to hire a firm other than Bechtel. We're not going to change horses in midstream was, in fact, the quote I remember him saying. And that was a great relief to not only... Grant and I and others from Bechtel, but to others, you know, Jerry and Ranch Kimball and others, because we've become so well uh, integrated with them. And I think for them to lose our services and expertise would have been um, potentially um, catastrophic, at least in the short term. Well, you got to stay in Salt Lake, right? Exactly. So um, tell us a little bit about Salt Lake. Well, um, I had always been a big fan of uh, Salt Lake City. Um, even when I was in Logan, I would often come down to uh, Salt Lake to go skiing at Alta quite a bit or just come down for concerts and other events in Salt Lake. So yeah, even, you know, I'd already had a, a, a deep a love and attraction for Salt Lake City. And um, for me, uh, I just felt like a local. I mean, I just made myself a local. And uh, there were so many great things about Salt Lake, Salt Lake City. And there still are. I mean, the, the avenues... 
the neighborhood, all the neighborhoods are fantastic. The street trees are incredible and it's only gotten better with time, uh, with bike lanes and other sorts of, um, bicycle and pedestrian amenities that have been added throughout the city. Um, the street fairs were always a great attraction to me. The farmer's market downtown by pioneer was, uh, something I used to go to, uh, you know, weekly, um, becoming a sustaining member and a fan of KRCL radio, which I still am to this day, listen to that station, just a fantastic, um, uh, thing for Salt Lake city, the ninth and ninth neighborhood. I was also a season ticket holder for the, what was called the Salt Lake buzz at the time. I believe there are these now. So just having that fantastic AAA stadium, uh, in the heart of Salt Lake. So I just felt like a great place to live. And I was so glad I was not commuting. I mean, that was one of the options I was given was, um, to, you know, come to Salt Lake, stay in a hotel for a week or two, go back to San Francisco and then come back a week later. And I'm so glad I didn't go that route that I became a, you know, a legitimate and passionate resident of Salt Lake City. Well, it is a beautiful city. Um, I don't live in Salt Lake proper. I live in Sandy, which is just about 20 minutes south of mm-hmm. downtown. Uh, but but I've always uh, had a soft spot in my heart for this valley and for the city in particular. Well, I want to get onto some of these other really interesting stories that you've got here in your list, because what you've got are basically little bullets. And I want to know what's going on <laughs> behind them. <laughs> so let's go to this bullet. Testing of gravel for park and ride lots. What is that all about? <laughs> I thought that might uh, catch your attention. So, um, you know, putting on the venue development hat, um, none of us had any experience with how to anticipate the crush of automobiles and people in uh, in February, right? So um, one of the key things from a transportation standpoint, and Grant, as you know, oversaw both venues and transportation. So as much as I was involved in the venue development side, I was also working closely with Tom Halloran and Al Matisoff and others on the uh, transportation side. And um, so we had planned, as you may recall, uh, uh, several large uh, park and ride lots throughout throughout Utah. You know, there was one up north for Snow Basin. There was one down south. Uh, We had one up uh, near Kimball Junction and a few other locations. So the purpose of... of, uh, testing gravel for park and ride lots was, I think it was the uh, winter before, might've been the two winters before we actually did a a number of different um, test lots in the winter to, you know, not to simulate, but to test them for winter conditions to see how they would sustain them, sustain themselves with, you know, heavy truck or heavy bus traffic. And we use different types of gravel, different sizes, different mixes, different depths, um, all very kind of wonky and detailed, but so very important because if the park and ride lots failed at games time, you know, it could have been just a crushing blow to getting people to the venues on time. So uh, we went through this uh, testing of different locations, different mixes of gravel, came up with what we felt was the winning solution. And it also had to sustain, as you know, in Salt Lake, there's a, um, you can often get very mild conditions. And so we had to anticipate that uh, the Olympics might have started off with freezing temperatures and then suddenly you get a thaw and suddenly you're dealing with 40 degrees, 45 degrees, melting snow and pure muck. So um, we learned a lot through those, you know, just like Karen and Lisa and Todd were doing test events a year prior to the Olympics. We were doing, we were likewise doing testing of gravel park and ride lots throughout Utah. So did we end up getting the right kind of gravel? Yes, absolutely, because they did not fail. And uh, the other thing we had to do, and I remember distinctly up in Kimball Junction, to make sure that the gravel could be, you know, quickly and easily removed and the site restored to its native uh, or original condition prior to the park and ride lot being built. So talking about park and ride, uh, we had Tony Vetrano on last week. Uh, His episode just went live yesterday. And, you know, I kind of asked him this question, like, how do you plan? You, you talked about the crush of spectators, you know, how do you plan for that? Especially in an environment where you have people who are very accustomed to basically just driving up and parking in front of the venue and getting out of their car and going in and watching a, a session. 
And in an Olympic environment, that's not really possible. So, so how did you go about planning for, you mentioned simulations, you know, mm-hmm. planning all of this park and ride so that it wouldn't too adversely impact the spectator experience? Yes. Uh, so we, we worked with uh, a local vendor who had this uh, software, modeling software that was typically used for uh, manufacturing and assembly line production. And what we did is we developed these computer models for each of the park and ride lots to simulate the flow of buses and automobiles and people with the overall objective of having nobody wait more than 15 minutes for a bus, whether they were waiting at the park and ride lot to go up to the venue, say Snow Basin, for example, or coming out of the venue to get back to their park and ride lot. We didn't want people waiting more than 15 minutes, you know, given the elements and the coldness of the winter there. Uh, and that was also not just important to understand and, you know, achieve that 15 minute, stay under the 15 minute threshold, but it also um, told us how many buses we needed so that we needed to do this modeling early. I think we did that at least two years in advance. And once we, you know, kind of tweaked the system and understood, okay, we need this many buses here. We need that many buses there. We understood the headways of how often the bus would be coming. We modeled how long it would take 40 people to get in the bus, how many, how long it would take for them to exit the bus, you know, all this kind of wonky detail that goes into the planning of the games. Um, but as I was saying, you know, that was also really important to be able to tell Tom Alloran and others how many buses we needed. So we might have assigned, you know, 40 buses to do the loop at uh, from the park and ride for Snow Basin to go up to Snow Basin. And if we hadn't done the modeling, you know, let's say we just said, well, let's just go with 20 buses. That should work. And suddenly you've got people waiting 30 minutes, 45 minutes. You know, that's the risk. The other side of that is if you order too many buses, you would cost the Olympics money. You'd go over budget and you'd have a bunch of buses and bus drivers sitting around, you know, taking just a handful of passengers up at a time. So um, that was the other key thing about the park and ride lots was just the, the flow. And I think it, we had a couple glitches the first day, of course, is, which is to be expected. But overall, uh, the flow of people from, you know, driving to the park and ride, walking from, you know, a fairly large, probably 10-acre park and ride lot to get a bus, standing in line, getting on the bus with their winter gear. Uh, it all went uh, really well. It, it went, as we said afterwards, it went exactly as planned. Well, I'm going on a bit of a tangent here, but this computer simulation, you know, nowadays that's pretty much standard operating procedure, right? There are all kinds of uh, software available for modeling transport, for crowd management Mm or, uh, you know, spectator flows and queue, uh, managing the queues and all this kind of thing. Uh, But it sounds to me like back in the day, you know, 20 years ago, maybe that was uh, not necessarily the standard operating procedure. Yes, uh, exactly. It was not the standard. In fact, as I mentioned, we were using software that had been used for modeling, you know, the assemblage of TVs and furniture, for example, and uh, adapting it to transportation movements. Yeah. So it's interesting to see how Something, uh, you know, it's in a way uh, that was a bit of an innovation there that happened that you guys did. And now Absolutely. everybody yes. in the world is doing it. Mm-hmm. All right. You've got a point here. Fireworks and tents. <laughs> so um, what is that all about? <laughs> well, let me let me talk about fireworks in general. And, and one of the highlights, and I know that's a question at the end, but I'll uh, maybe uh, throw this out now for um, for discussion. But um one of the highlights for me, uh, some of the other people who have been on the podcast may have attended, may remember that we did a, you know, everything, we tested everything. We tested the events. As I've mentioned, we tested the park and ride lots. Well, we had to test the fireworks. And so there was one evening in particular, and I know Mitt and Fraser and Grant and Jerry and I and others were there. Um, we had to test the different applicants who were proposing to provide fireworks for the Salt Lake Olympics. So it was one evening in particular in the winter, and I know it was the winter because it was absolutely freezing cold. We all went out to Tuella, 
uh, you know, west of the Ochre Mountains, west of Salt Lake, uh, because we had to get away from people. You know, we didn't want to disturb people. And I think there were five vendors that were showcasing their uh, firework techniques. And it was a very fascinating evening. We all gathered out there. Uh, the five vendors had set up their fireworks equipment with loudspeakers so they could uh, blast their fireworks and blast the music at the same time. And it was incredible. We went one by one, um, but there was a lot of time in between because the, you know, the vendor one went first with the fireworks and the music. There was a long pause, maybe a, a half an hour at least for the other team to set up their fireworks production and display, get the music queued up, set it off. And I think we were out there till I got to say four in the morning. It was just frigid on this winter's night and everybody was drinking coffee or hot chocolate. Um, so the, and they selected the eventual, um, you know, they made the selection of the fireworks vendor, which was great. So then, uh, fast forward to, uh, opening night of the Olympics, I'm managing the Olympic medals plaza. The first night, the first evening of the Olympic medals plaza goes perfect. It's flawless. And at the end, as you may recall, uh, at the end of each night of Olympic Medals Plaza, after the talent and after the culture and after the uh, ceremonies and the awards, the fireworks would go off. And we had a location fairly close to um, Olympic Medals Plaza. It was just east of the plaza. And I was um, working out of a trailer um, behind what was the former Greyhound uh, bus station, just east of, just behind the stage, maybe just hundred feet from the stage. So we were, I think I was out on the site, obviously, you know, managing the site during the, uh, when the fireworks were going off, we went back to our production trailer and we went through some of the tents to put away some materials. And I look up and all the entire, uh, all of the tents were cut up with like Swiss cheese. What had happened was they had, uh, they didn't quite, um, let's say tool the uh, the height of the fireworks properly. So as the fireworks came down, they were coming down, you know, with red hot embers and it just burned holes through the uh, tents that we had back of house for the Olympic medals plaza. So a couple of things happened after that. We, the next day we quickly brought our tent vendor back in, put on another layer of skin over the roof of these tents that had holes. And we, as I recall, got the fireworks vendor to kind of just fine tune their, um, production and display so that we didn't have red hot embers falling into the tents and trailers back of house and nor on the audience as well, obviously. Yeah. I wouldn't want to be, uh, I wouldn't want to be around when those hot embers are, might be falling around on audience members. Uh, we talked about it a little bit earlier. The metals Plaza was a huge celebration site. I thought it was incredibly successful and it really became like the place to go, you know, in addition to the competitions, there were a lot of great bands that performed. There was, a, you know, the entertainment was fascinating. Maybe you can talk a little bit about some of the kind of entertainment highlights there at uh, Metals Plaza during competition. Sure. So um, I, uh, you know, I'm a huge music fan. And I remember um, in, in, you know, as I was designing Metals Plaza, um, wondering, well, who's going to be performing here? And everybody knew that there would be an announcement coming up. Um, I don't recall exactly when it was, maybe just a few months before the games. Um, and I remember distinctly when the announcement of the headlining talent was announced and everybody was so excited. There were so many good bands and I'm actually looking at a list right now. It's on Wikipedia, but, um, everybody from Dave Matthews band to the Foo Fighters, Bare Naked Ladies, which I know has come up a number of times, Cheryl Crow, Brooks and Dunn, uh, Creed, Mark Anthony, uh, NSYNC and Martina McBride and the Temptations were some of the highlights for me. But in particular, the Foo Fighters were a, a, a band that I uh, was and am still a big fan of. And so when I heard that they were performing on the third night, it was February 11th, uh, I knew that was going to be a noteworthy night for me. So I was made, made sure I was in the plaza in the afternoon for the sound check. Uh, got to meet Dave Grohl briefly back at house uh, as he was moving from, you know, through the mag and bag the uh, security checkpoints into the back of house uh, trailers and tents. And so to be there for the sound check and to actually be there um, during his performance, during their performance was just a fantastic uh, feeling for me. And, you know, but all the concerts were really great. I thought the, the, uh, 
the organizing committee did a great job at selecting a tremendous uh, variety of artists to perform that night. So I think every night was exciting for, for everybody. Yeah, it was fantastic. You know, I, I, I went and saw a few of those myself and, and uh, just, just had a great, great time there. You talked a moment ago briefly about the, the location of the Metals Plaza, the orientation of the, of the stage and, and so on and so forth. But if I recall, um, right near that location, it may have been actually right over that location in 1999, a tornado swept through there. Yes, exactly. And I, um, I know Al Matasoff talked about that tornado <laughs> in extremely vivid terms, and that's exactly how it was for me. I wasn't. Uh, I was in the building uh, again. We were at two fifty seven East, two hundred South at the time, and I distinctly remember um, walking out on the sidewalk, looking to the west, and seeing this tornado just coming very, very close to us in the building and, and obviously was sweeping through downtown. I'd never seen a tornado. So it was um, very disturbing. I'd been through earthquakes, been through, you know, hurricanes and blizzards, but never a tornado. So um, that was uh, literally and figuratively a hair raising experience. And to see the damage that it uh, brought so quickly, and it, it was only a matter of minutes before it, you know, as you know, it came in from the Southwest exited up through Cedar Creek to the Northeast and then it dissipated and was gone. But that was a very, you know, um, cataclysmic moment. And I remember, uh, even I was a big pin collector back then of Olympic pins. I believe there were some pins that came out with the tornado featured on them. So yeah, that was a very memorable, um, occasion for, for all of us that were there at the time. Well, you mentioned that you had never been through a tornado. Well, most native Utahns had never seen one either. You know, <laughs> it was a complete surprise I, to all of us around here. Like, what a tornado now here now. Yes. I think it, I, I looked it up uh, online uh, earlier this week and it was the only the second major tornado ever to hit Salt Lake city. So yes, you're right. Obviously nobody knew what to expect then. Well, did you get any time to go out and see any competition? Sometimes people are so busy, they don't really get to go see anything. Were you there at Metals Plaza 24-7 living on a cot, you know, or did you actually get to go out and see anything? <laughs> well, I did, actually. And, and actually, prior to the Olympics, um, I went to a number of test events, which was really fun. And, and uh, I also uh, had friends who came in from the Bay Area and had the, uh, the fortune to take a couple bobsled rides up at uh, Olympic Park, which was just an amazing experience too. That was about a year before the games. Um, I also got to do some curling up in Ogden, um, which I'd never curled before, but fell in love with the sport. And I really love watching it on TV uh, during the games. Yes, I did get match to get to a few events. I was generally at Olympic medals Plaza from, I would say from noon till midnight, sometimes later uh, every day. So I got to see some late morning events around town, maybe some early afternoon events. Uh, so I did get to uh, have a few sort of touches with the actual events. I would have liked more, but you know, my job there was to you know manage the site and manage the Olympic Mills Plaza. So I um, did that with you know gladly. Well, curling's an interesting one. We did an episode. Oh, I don't know, a month or two back with mm -hmm. uh, Robert and Silvana Richardson, who are all about the curling. That's where they worked as a curling venue and they are curling people. And uh, so that's a great list. Uh, that's a great listen. If you if you get a chance to listen to that one before we get to our final segment, I don't know if you've got anything else on your list that you want to discuss. I have a couple of questions. Sure. One of those is. You mentioned that uh, after the games, you returned to San Diego or you moved to San Diego, uh, which is where you live currently. But I'm curious about the the impact of the games on you. Were there certain things that you learned working there in your experience that you've incorporated in your professional life uh, later on? Well, that's a, a fantastic question. I was hoping for an opportunity to sort of talk about that. Um, many, many things I've learned from the Olympics that I incorporate into my planning and design projects here in California and around the country. Um, one is being very resourceful. And you know, for example, um, 
uh, providing you know equal and full access for disabled people through uh, ADA rules and regulations is sort of difficult on snow. And so, like we were testing the parking lots, we were also testing the parking ride lots. We also did some testing of different uh, rollout mats, for example, uh, to accommodate uh, disabled people getting to a venue from uh, from say the park and ride drop off at the base of the venue, particularly I'm thinking of mountain venues, obviously with the snow. Um, so my point there is that, you know, you learn to just be extremely resourceful. There's a term I've used quite a bit in my career, which is a beat to fit paint to match. And that's a term I learned way before the Olympics of say, you're trying to um, you're on site and the project is being constructed and you are trying to fit two pieces of pipe together and they don't quite fit. And, they don't match the drawings or the contractor didn't bring what was, you know, specced on the drawings and you just say, beat it to fit and then paint it to match and you just move on and you keep going. And that's the, I think the big thing I took away from the Olympics was um, to be resourceful, to not stop and to keep your eye on the prize and to keep moving towards the finish line. And I learned a lot of that from uh, Grant Thomas, in fact. Well, you've mentioned Grant. Uh, you work with some larger than life personalities there in the organizing committee, Ranch Kimball, uh, Jerry mm-hmm. uh, Anderson. I'm wondering if you can just give us a little insight as to, you know, how it was like working with a really interesting team, you know, there in, in, in Salt Lake, people coming from various backgrounds, you know, coming together to deliver this event. You know, what was it like working with some of these Really, really interesting people. Well, it was as Amber Walbeck said, a laugh a minute, right? Everybody, uh, everybody had a great sense of humor. Everybody was extremely dedicated. Everybody was extremely hardworking. Uh, I, I know for myself and others, we were putting in sixty plus hours a week. Uh, you know, I'd say up the last two years of planning for the games just before the game. So you had to keep um, your head on your shoulders. You had to keep a, a festive. Uh, mood through it or else you you wouldn't survive and so um, we had great parties we had a lot of fun together we did things together outside of the you know you know the planning for the olympics we'd uh, we'd have halloween parties together we'd have costume parties together we'd go to concerts together um, and you had to respect other people's uh, expertise and you know stay in your lane as they say was very important because you had people coming in from you know sydney or little hammer uh, and they had special areas of expertise and you had to learn to work it out. And, you know, the operations crew under Doug might've had, you know, one set of objectives. And then those of us under Jerry and Grant and venues had another set of objectives. Uh, we had the burden of maintaining the budgets. In fact, reducing the budgets, as I mentioned, and reporting that back to Fraser and, and, uh, Mitt on a, you know, weekly bi-weekly basis. Um, it was just a very collect, a great collective spirit. Everybody got along really well. Uh, everybody respected each other's profession and professionalism. Um, and it was a great mix of um, people. Like I was talking about the influx of um, the eclectic makeup of the student body at Utah State University in the 70s was not unlike what we had on the Olympic Committee. We had people from around the world, as I mentioned, the, the people from Norway. Boy, they were a lot of fun. They had some, you know, great stories to talk about from Norway. We had people from all over the country. Um, we had people from Asia, Australia. It was just a fantastic mix of people. And I think that, you know, as you see in the sort of the mix of the games and the mix of the athletes, I'd, I'd have to say that was pretty accurately reflected in the makeup of the Olympic Committee. So... Last chance before we get to our final segment. Anything else in your notes that we need to cover? No, I I think we're good. I'm ready for the final leg of the marathon here. All right. Let's put a cap on it. Our three questions. Question number one, music. You mentioned that you were a music lover. So why don't you give us some of the music highlights? Sure. Well, I'm going to give you a quick preface to each song um, to help tell the story. So in November of 2001, just two months after 9-11 and just a few months before the games, uh, U2 came and played at the Delta Center. And it was an epic concert. You know, it, it was, everybody was still in shock from 9-11. Uh, I know myself and others on the Olympic Committee were just stressing out 
in a major way. Are we going to make it? Are we going to get this done in time? Um, again, the event doesn't change. And they put on a fantastic concert. It was an epic. It had to have at least been two and a half, three hours long. And they finished with a particular song that I found and still find very inspirational, which is Walk On. And um, it meant a lot to me at the time. And it still means a lot to me. So I always, when I hear that song, it definitely brings me back to uh, the Olympic days. The second song, um, as you know, we were in the Wells Fargo building and we were up on the 17th floor. And uh, I distinctly remember coming out uh, out of our offices to get in the elevators to go down to the ground level and looking to the west. And there were these beautiful views out past the Ochre Mountains over the Salt Lake and, you know, particularly the right time of the evening, the right weather. The views were just utterly fantastic. And so there was a song by R.E.M. at the time called All the Way to Reno. And I used to imagine, boy, if I just squinted my eyes, I could possibly see Reno out there on the horizon. So I always associate that song with that building and with the Olympics. And then finally, um, as I mentioned, the Foo Fighters were a highlight for me during you know the Olympic Medals Plaza performances. And uh, they played a song that night that was from a previous album called My Hero. And I remember Dave Grohl uh, dedicating it to the athletes, all the athletes of the world. And that was just a really uh, touching movement for me, a movement for me. So uh, again, walk on from U2 all the way to Reno from REM and My Hero from the Foo Fighters. Well, those are all fantastic songs. Yeah, um, walk on, you're right. Uh, several people have mentioned that song in the concert uh, with the names of all of those who had passed being scrolled up on the screens, um, that it was incredibly moving all the way to Reno. Reno is about 500 miles (laughs) west of (laughs) Salt Lake City. So if not for the curvature of the earth, yeah, you could probably squint and see it. Um, And uh, yeah, the Foo Fighters, my hero, that's a great song. It's one of my favorites. So those are great. We'll put those on the Spotify playlist. Now let's talk about food. Uh, any particular restaurants or hangouts that you like to frequent while you were living and working in Salt Lake? Well, near my house in Sugar House was the Blue Plate Diner. I became good friends with John, the owner, and in fact, helped him sort of plan uh, the restaurant before it opened. So I used to go there quite a bit because it was just a block from where I lived. Uh, and then downtown, as I mentioned, when we were at 257 East, 200 South, uh, used to go to the Gourmandise Bakery quite a bit, as I know a number of people have mentioned. But also very close by was the um, Greek Souvlaki, which is still there today. And I do come back to Salt Lake on occasion. I have a number of projects in Salt Lake and in Utah, so that I'm very fortunate to come back to uh, Salt Lake, and I always make a point of going to the bakery and or Greek Souvlaki, and then also Cafe Madrid, which was uh, in Holiday to the South. Um, just a fantastic uh, Spanish restaurant that I believe is still there. Yes, Gourmandis has been mentioned by several people that's already on our map. I'm trying to think if someone's mentioned Greek Souvlaki. I think one other person at least mm. has mentioned it. Uh, one of my favorites as well. And uh, Cafe Madrid will definitely add those to our map that's on the website so people can see all the restaurants that have been nominated by their colleagues in Slock. And then to wrap us up, your, I don't know, your favorite memory of the game or memories, if you have more than one uh, goosebump moment that you want to share with us. Well, Kirsten, I've got a couple I want to cover. Um, and much like uh, Ron Cameron's uh, closing memory, uh, I had something very similar. So the night before opening uh, or the night before Olympic Medals Plaza opened, I had to spend all night uh, with uh, Secret Service and other security officials doing an all night sweep of Metals Plaza. And, and what comes with that is uh, you have to take them through every trailer, every closet, every filing cabinet, every desk drawer, every manhole cover, because the, the Olympic Metals Plaza extended, uh, you know, onto some surface streets. And uh, it took all night. And uh, I believe they had dogs with us. We went up into that incredible six story production tower through the luxury suites, through the Porta Johns, you name it. We covered every square inch. And it took all night. And I just remember that feeling in the morning of finally, finally, we completed the sweep and we're locking everything up. And I knew that we had volunteers and staff showing up probably in about an hour or two to start the day. Sun was coming up over the mountains to the east. And it was just a very 
very memorable moment. And then I knew finally we had made it, you know, four years into this for myself. It was really uh, overwhelming. It was really something. So I uh, went home, slept for a couple hours, and then came back with a great deal of excitement for the first day and night of Olympic Medals Plaza. The um, second kind of uh, memory I have very fond is unfortunate to go back to Salt Lake City on occasion. I live in California. And uh, when I'm in Salt Lake City, I always invariably drive by the Metals Plaza site or by the Delta Center. And uh, when I drive by these sites, I, I I can hear, I literally feel I can hear the, the cheering of 24,000 people. I can hear Dave Matthews or Foo Fighters. And I look out and it's just a surface parking lot. And I try to tell any of my work colleagues with them with, oh, this was the fantastic Olympic of Metals Plaza. And they're looking out at a 10 acre parking lot like, okay, um, they don't believe me. And they weren't there to live it. But it was really, really something. Um, and I also think of when I drive through the streets of downtown Salt Lake, I, I see the incredible parade and cultural events that Scott Gibbons group put on and then the fantastic look of the games by Bob Finley and Tanya Labuick, the wraps on the buildings, which were incredible. And then I drive by uh, the old Slock headquarters, whether it was on uh, 200 South or Main Street. And I think of our uh, our departed colleagues like Matt Walters and Ranch Kimball and Jerry Anderson. It leaves me with a very, you know, spine tingling, warm memory. And so I'm really fortunate to be able to get back to Salt Lake for those uh, memories for projects that I'm currently working on. And um, with that, I thought of another song I'd like to add to the playlist. I don't think it's on the playlist, but I dedicate this one to all my friends in the venues department and logistics and operations and all the other departments, all these people that travel the world looking for the next rock and roll show or the next Olympic or the next Super Bowl. So for them, I think of a great song and it's a long way to the top by ACDC. And when I play that, I think of those guys and, and their tireless efforts to, you know, give up on you know, take on short-term living conditions around the world, leave their friends and family behind only to come back before they get the bug again and get back on the road. So I think of those guys and want to thank them. And uh, with that, Christian, I'd like to thank you very much for this fantastic discussion. Well, the pleasure has certainly been mine, Rick. I really appreciate you coming on and sharing all of these stories. We'll put ACDC on our Spotify playlist. And thank you again so much for sharing these wonderful memories with us. I really do appreciate it. If colleagues or friends, if they want to learn more about the work that you did in Salt Lake or they want to learn more about the work that you're currently doing, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you? Uh, they can reach me through uh, LinkedIn, Rick Barrett on LinkedIn, and then also through my work email, which is rickb at migcom.com. So rickb at migcom.com. All right. Fantastic. Rick, thank you so much. Listeners, please like and subscribe to our podcast and we'll listen again soon. Rick, thank you. Thank you, Kristen. Great job. Thank you very much. 